CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, December 7th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes executive director of Win Without Wars, Sarah Hagdutsi. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, the best shows to go see in town coming up this weekend, you want to head to ChicagoReader.com because there's all that and a whole lot more. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J O R. A, V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Give Them Hell, Why Need a Thursday, and Here's Why story. And yesterday's sometimes, which I didn't get to, says it all. Uh, Juanita Irizarry leaving Friends of the Parks after eight years of good trouble. Everybody who listens to the show now knows Juanita is a frequent guest on my show. She's a teller like it is community activist in the city of Chicago, and I think she's done a great service for her city. Uh, and she just got tired of it. So Juanita said, I'm out of here, okay? I'm gone. I don't blame you, Juanita. Eight years. So Friends of the Park is an organization. Just follow me on this, ladies and gentlemen. Friends of the Park is an organization that advocates on the park part of Open space in the environment. <laughs> I have to laugh just thinking about it because no, nobody gives more lip service to the concept of open space and the environment than the city of Chicago. We were talking about this last, uh, the other day with the great McDumkey. We had the worst recycling program. My distinguished guest, Sarah, probably wasn't even living in Chicago. We, back in the day, the 90s, it was the worst. We're a democratic city. Supposedly our mayor, Mayor Daly, was like an environmentalist with this thing called the blue bag program. It was a freaking joke. It was like Mayor Daly and got together with his aides. He goes, let's figure out a way to humiliate Chicagoans. They'll all recycle and then we're just going to mix it all together and it'll have no impact whatsoever. And I would be telling my wife this. This does nothing. This is absolutely a waste of time. But she was committed, unlike everybody else in the city of Chicago, runs the city whose position of power. And she's not the only one. There's so many good people in the city of Chicago want to do the right thing by the environment. And our city goes, ah, nah, we don't care. We don't care about any of you guys. We're going to make immigrants go stay at a toxin-filled landfill or something in Brighton Park. We're not talking about that either. Anyway. Uh, one of the great fights that Juanita waged was the fight against Lucas Museum. I'm not going to revisit that issue. It was such an unfair fight. On one hand, it was like all these gazillionaires and powerful people supported by Mayor Rahm. And on the other hand was Juanita and her band of environmentalists. So 99 times out of 100, I said, oh, Juanita, give it up. You can't beat these guys. Well, they... They, they dragged it on so long that George Lucas said, to hell with it. I'm going to L.A. And so he's in L.A. God bless him. He's got his little museum in L.A. Star Wars man. That's cool. But the concept of lakefront land not being developed is like sacrosanct in this city. Hello, Burnham. Ever heard of them? 
So you're not supposed to develop on lakefront land. Now, here I am. I said I wasn't going to revisit the issue. Uh, <laughs> but here I find myself. At the time, all the proponents would go, Ben, it's not vacant land front, lakefront land. It's a parking lot. I'm like, yeah, it shouldn't be a parking lot there. Dig up the parking lot. Duh. You put a building on the parking lot, you'll never be able to get rid of it. Duh. <laughs> they thought you guys were so stupid, Chicago. They go, there's a parking lot there. And then Rom came up with a joke. He called him friends in a parking lot. He thought that was hilarious, man. Anyway, Juanita outlasted Rom. There you go, Juanita. You're, uh... And, of course, the day she announced she's leaving, the Bears announced that they're going to, they want to use that parking lot to build a stadium. I'm like, what a joke. It's like a bad Bears. That's what I'm telling you right now. I said it once. I'll say it again. The only way you warrant getting a nickel in public money for a field for your wretched team, and it is wretched, Sarah doesn't know what I'm talking about because she's not really a sports fan, but I assure you, Sarah, our football team is terrible. Okay. The only reason you warrant a nickel is if you go to the South side on an area that's filled with all kinds of toxins and you use the public dollars to remediate the land, do something good for once. You know, if you're not going to be good in football, which you haven't been since 1985, hello bears. It's a long time. If you're not going to be good at football, at least be a good citizen. And do something for people who need it the most. Don't just pave over parking lots. Pull up the parking lot. Don't need that parking lot there anyway. Anyway, Juanita, good luck with whatever you want to do. And you're always welcome on my humble little podcast. All right, without further ado, I am going to bring on Sarah, who is uh, really a good sport. Uh, Haga Dusty, uh, who is the executive director of Win Without War. And we're going to be talking about something completely different than my opening rant. And I warned you, Sarah, that I would do that, but I had to get that out of my system. Uh, probably better that than the thing I was going to say about the Bulls, which I'll hold off for another day. Uh, so anyway, Sarah, welcome to my humble podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. All right. So we're going to be talking about the war in Gaza uh, right now, and we're going to try to do it as dispassionately uh, and as analytically and as compassionately, I guess, dispassionate compassion uh, sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I don't believe it's a contradiction in terms, Sarah. I believe that uh, we're avoiding, or at least I'm speaking for myself, you can do whatever you want, it's a free country, histrionics, low blows, unnecessary uh, like needling, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but have compassion for everybody involved because it's a slaughter going on right there. And it's heartbreak uh, when you every day to just think about it, just imagine if you have lived it. So that's how I open. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, so we'll take it from there. So why don't you uh, go ahead? Let me jump in there because I actually think that's really important. I think when we talk about conflicts and I've seen this happen in this conflict a lot, it's really easy to forget the human impact at the center of what we're talking about. And I'd really love for us to sit there just for a moment, given what is happening on the ground in Gaza right now. So I want to start by saying hospitals are overwhelmed. And I want to start there because I know many of us lived through the pandemic and that fear of hospitals being overwhelmed, of needing help and not being able to get it is something that is what is happening right now in Gaza. So it's not just that there's bombs happening every day. It is that when people are hurt, 
they can't get help. And Ben, I've had two kids. There are thousands of pregnant people in Gaza right now, and I cannot imagine how scary that must be. And the Israeli government has said that they've sent leaflets, they've shared graphs about where some of those attacks are going to be. And I think it's really easy for people to forget that Gaza is small. And when this conflict started, the IDF told people to go from the north to the south. And that's how they could avoid fighting. And that's what a lot of people did. And now it's in the south and people have nowhere to go. They can't get clean water, That's they're having trouble accessing food. And if they get hurt, it's really hard for them to get care. And that is how bad things are. And I know it's hard, but I really wanted to ground us in the humanity of what is happening at the start of this conversation. Yes. And I feel compelled uh, before we uh, take a deeper dive into what you're saying, Sarah, to point out that the start of this particular conflict uh, was Hamas's savage uh, onslaught in Israel, where they slaughtered uh, innocent people. It was a brutal attack. I always feel compelled to say that because it lingers with me still, uh, and it haunts me. On, uh, and uh, and secondary, like for many people, you can't get to the second part of the conversation without acknowledging the first part. Uh, and uh, I feel in many ways uh, that's on display constantly in exchanges I see uh, yeah. in the country. Go ahead. Absolutely. And I want to be unequivocal. Those attacks were horrific. And like, I can't imagine the terror of the hostages. I can't imagine the rage of people who've lost loved ones. And I will share that I'm a Muslim woman and my kids have Jewish and Muslim heritage. And it's really easy for people to talk about this conflict like those communities are never intertwined. And my family proves that's not true. And this has been such a hard moment. I want my kids to not only grow up being proud of both of their heritages, but to be safe. And they could have been on either side of that border in on October 7th or in the days afterwards. And that's horrifying. And that's why we need to get to a better place. Yeah. Um, well, I did not know that. Uh, talk about not doing your homework. Uh, I did not know that autobiographical uh, aspect of your life. Why don't you talk a little bit about what brings you uh, to the issue before we get into the issue itself? Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I I imagine like many of your listeners, I marched against the war in Iraq. It was one of my first protests. And for me, after seeing the horror that resulted in that war, it was really important to do the work to make sure we didn't get there. I didn't want to be marching against a war when it was about to happen. I wanted to be organizing to stop us from getting to that point again. And that's why I now am the executive director of Win Without War. And what we do as an organization is we have hundreds of thousands of activists across this country, and we work on common sense solutions to complicated problems. And that we do that because we've seen that violence first solutions don't work 
and often make things a lot worse. And we really want to build genuine peace. And when I say peace, Ben, I mean a world where everyone can live with dignity and thrive without the fear of violence. Uh, and so just to make clear, uh, you're saying uh, common sense solutions to complicated problems. Do you uh, get involved in issues besides uh, the war in Gaza, the, the struggle between Israelis and Palestinians? Are you involved in other issues around the globe? Absolutely. We work on things like the Pentagon budget and how much of our money goes towards, again, funneling violent first solutions as opposed to things like access to health care or education at home. We work on how we can create more pathways to diplomacy globally. But also we work on how weapons manufacturers, be they whether they're creating bombs or guns, often are employing the same tactics to ensure that they can keep selling weapons that are hurting people as opposed to getting us to a point where we're investing in humans and letting them reach their full potential. What are the, some of those tactics that they use to, to sell their munitions? They do a lot of different things. And again, there's always this notion that violence makes it better. And I think bringing this back to what we're seeing in Israel and Gaza, like part of the strategy here that the Israeli government has articulated is that they want to eradicate Hamas. Now, I think Hamas is horrific. And after 20 years of the global war on terror, we have seen that you cannot eradicate groups like Hamas with war. It didn't work with the Taliban. It didn't work with Al-Qaeda. It's not going to work here. And what's worse is when we try using military solutions or violent solutions in cases like this, it can make things worse. It can help fuel even more extreme groups. And Ben, I don't even want to imagine what a more extreme version of Hamas is. And getting the fact that this could be helping fuel that is terrifying. I have an answer when I ask this question, but I want to hear your answer. Uh, how does it uh, make it worse if you pledge yourself to the goal of eradicating Hamas, uh, even though you know probably somewhere in the back regions of your mind that will never happen? Because what happens instead is you not only don't eradicate that group, you end up doing what we're seeing now, which is punishing families, neighbors, entire communities for something that they had no part in. And when we, like, I'm sure everyone listening to this believes in due process. When people do horrifying things, they need to be held accountable. But none of us think it's okay to hold an entire city accountable for the actions of individuals. And that's what I mean when we're talking about collective punishment. That's what's happening in Gaza right now. And you can want accountability for Hamas. You can want justice for October 7th. And you can also say that collective punishment is wrong because instinctively, we all know it is. Yeah, I agree with that. Plus, you just, it's a... 
I mean, you're just perpetuating the hate that exists. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know how you can build toward peace if you're waging war against uh, people, many of whom are innocent, have nothing to do with it, uh, the war. So other than the fact that they live, you know, here, I mean, just imagine if someone uh, said that all Americans should be held accountable for the, the carnage caused by George W. Bush in Iraq. I mean, that's not fair. And then the people said, well, you elected him. Well, personally, I didn't even vote for the guy. But uh, that's essentially what's happening uh, in Gaza, in my humble opinion. Um, all right. So almost from the get-go on this show, anyway, when we talk about uh, what's happening uh, in Gaza and Israel, I've been uh, pleading for a ceasefire, and I always make fun of myself because it's just a little podcast in the city of Chicago and we have very little influence, obviously. Certainly nobody uh, um, has, uh, <laughs> nobody from the White House has called me up to ask me my opinions on this, but I feel just I should do it. Uh, two responses. One, it took the United States uh, government a while to get to this point where they even said ceasefire. Uh, and then the other point that uh, a mutual friend of ours says, then it's bigger than a ceasefire. Stop saying ceasefire. You got to go beyond that. This is a mutual friend who's always telling me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, and uh, so let's start with the first uh, part first. And as diplomatically as you can, Sarah, analyze in your humble opinion uh, what the impact of how Joe, President Biden has handled this has been on this conflict. I mean, there's so many different pathways to that. I think one thing I want to really pull out, though, is calls for a ceasefire matter. And Ben, I know that many people listening might not think they have power to create change in this moment. And I want to be unequivocal that it is the sum of all of our voices that makes a difference here. So you saying what you do alongside many others, that is how we are going to create change. And I encourage everyone to keep that in mind, because when people like us lose hope and do nothing, things will only get worse. In terms of the ceasefire, I also want to say we saw it happen and it worked. It was phenomenal watching headlines of hostages being returned to their families. It was fantastic to see the violence pause and people in Gaza being able to get aid and have a respite. And when that violence paused, the violence that has been escalating in the West Bank and in other parts of the region also slowed down. It worked. And we need to get back to that. And this is where... I know this conflict has been weighing so hard on so many people. And again, it is so easy to lose hope. And when we talk about what comes after a ceasefire or what's next, as someone who has done a lot of work in foreign policy, I know bad things happen when people in Washington or people outside of where a place is try to make decisions about what happens next. Because Folks like us aren't going to have to live with the consequences of those decisions. And we don't understand what's happening on the ground as well as the people living there do. But the thing that has given me so much hope is the groups that are bringing together 
Jewish and Palestinian people within Israel and Gaza. So there's groups like Standing Together, Combatants for Peace, the Families Forum. These are groups that are not only articulating a vision of what genuine peace looks like, but doing the hard work of getting there and succeeding. And I think the most important thing people like us can do is when we're talking about what's next after a ceasefire, it can't just be the same leaders that have let us down and made the same mistakes over and over again. We need to make sure that the true innovators and visionaries who have succeeded where others haven't, they're the ones that have the seats at the table and are being listened to. And I think that's the most productive thing a lot of us can push for. Mm. All right. So uh, go back to what I was asking uh, about uh, uh, Biden uh, and uh, and his embrace of Netanyahu and how he handled it in that early stages. Uh, what impact do you think that had on, on the, the discussion about the conflict and the conflict itself? I will say, I think it's been encouraging to see the Biden administration start to lay out some new places where they diverge. It has been fantastic to hear the president and members of the administration say unequivocally that they are not for people in Gaza being forcibly reallocated elsewhere. And there have been ministers in the Israeli government that have called for that. And just having that as a red line has been really helpful. It has also been concerning when the Biden administration has, I like will give a benefit of the doubt here unintentionally or misspoke, but there have been moments where they've tried to equivocate around support for a ceasefire with support for Hamas. And we saw what this, how this played out in the aftermath of the global war on terror. In moments like this, being able to have a debate is really crucial. And like, Ben, I'm going to speak for you. You and I don't support Hamas. But, and there's such a diverse group of voices calling for a ceasefire from Jewish folks, Muslim folks, Arab communities, Palestinian communities, people around the world, within the region, in Israel, and in Palestine that saying they're all just doing that is for Hamas is absurd. Mm -hmm. And it totally negates the very real questions we have in that this strategy has not worked for 20 years. Why will it work now? And how can you possibly do it given the horrific human cost it comes at? So I think it's that. And the most important thing the Biden administration can do is to do everything in its power to get us into a lasting ceasefire, because that's how we get the horror to end. And also, this is, again, working in the field I do, things can always get worse. Mm -hmm. We've already seen escalating strikes in Syria with Iran-linked groups. We're seeing it happen in the West Bank. Getting us to a lasting ceasefire stops all of those worst case scenarios happening as well. And that is singularly the most important thing the Biden administration can do right now. All right. So let's go back to uh, the ceasefire or the halt, whatever you want to call it, uh, that existed last week. 
for forget how long it lasted. When you analyze what went down in the days leading up to that, what do you think the contributing factors were to convincing uh, the Israelis to uh, and Hamas to have a ceasefire? Uh, and so the reason I ask that is because if you do that analysis from that, then you can maybe learn some lessons that you can apply in the future. So what do you think uh, were the contributing factors? I think one of the most important contributing factors was a real outcry over the safety of hostages being held by Hamas and people wanting them and their families wanting them home safe. I think that was crucial. And I do think that we need to keep their safety in mind. And that needs to be the biggest priority when we're looking at things that need to happen. Hostages need to get home. And there are still more hostages left. And having that conversation shift to how do we get these people back, I think was one of the biggest points in helping secure that ceasefire. And why didn't it last? I mean, it didn't last because, like, in some ways, the same political leaders walked away. And this is where public pressure is really important. Mm -hmm. We need to make it clear that we will not stand for anything less than everyone in Palestine and Israel being able to live with dignity without the constant fear of violence. That means a ceasefire. That means it has to happen now. That means we want all the hostages to be returned home. We want people in Gaza to be able to get the help and support they need. And we want this to the violence that is happening to stop. Uh, and uh, do you see any possibility right now? Do you see any indications right now where we're at right now that we could uh, go back to a ceasefire, even if it's just for one week? I I'm going to take you up on your challenge, not to just to preach hopelessness. So do you see any uh, elements of hope right now? I think there's a lot of hope right now. I think there is members of Congress who are calling for a ceasefire. There's humanitarian organizations calling for a ceasefire. We are seeing the Biden administration actively say that they are pushing for more pauses and to get the remaining hostages out. All of those are really great signs. And again, this is where, Ben, your voice, the voice of everyone who is listening is so crucial. Our job is to make sure that we are not going to give up, that as long as that is happening, that we will keep pushing. So a ceasefire happened. It worked. It didn't last, but that doesn't mean we can't get back there. And as long as we still have momentum, we are doing the work of pushing our leadership to push for that. And again, our priority has to be people in Israel and Palestine need to be able to have dignity and not face the daily threat of violence. None of us should settle for anything less. I'm with you 100% on that one. That should be just accepted across the board as an automatic. Uh, and um, address the other issue 
I know it's, uh, as I told our mutual friend, uh, it's really putting the cart before the horse when you think about what's next, if we can't even have a ceasefire. Uh, but a ceasefire is ultimately the first step toward something else. Uh, and so in your humble opinion, what is next? Because I got a feeling a conversation about what is next is embedded in a conversation about having a ceasefire. So talk a little bit about what comes with a ceasefire. I think a ceasefire is first a pause, which hopefully opens up more political space to talk about what's next. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where I think it's really important for people like us to have that humility of not being there. I don't think it's for us to define what is next. I think it is for us to push for everyday people's voices to be a part of that discussion. And again, for civil society who has led on that work of reconciliation, of building peace, of doing that work to be at the table. And I wanna be clear, if people like us aren't pushing for that, it won't happen. And that's where we see a lot of these processes not work. Because if you ignore where people are, if civil society doesn't have a seat at the table, then they're not going to be connected to everything you need to make it sustainable. Yeah, and I uh, agree with you that uh, the the movement in this country has had an impact. There's no question in my mind. I've seen it. Uh, and it's a struggle and we'll not have that conversation in this particular show, but we've had it in the past. We'll continue to have it, but it is a struggle. We saw it here, uh, in the Chicago city council, uh, a few weeks back at the outset, uh, where, um, one older woman, Deborah Silverstein had a proposal that was unequivocal support for Israel. And another older woman, Rosanna Rodriguez said, we, it should be a more nuanced statement. Uh, we shouldn't just say blanket support for Israel. If that means just the wholesale killing of Palestinians who have nothing to do with Hamas. Uh, they went back and forth, and it was ended up approving it on a voice vote. And Sarah, I, I smile when the voice vote happened. I kind of teased everybody a little bit about it because uh, clearly everybody wanted to avoid uh, taking a stand that they could be linked to. <laughs> uh, yeah, profiles encourage Chicago. Uh, but um, on the other hand, it just showed you that um, in some tiny incremental way, there had been a shift mm -hmm. in Chicago. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's just yeah. like, well, no, uh, we're not just going to give blind declaration of support uh, to Israel. We don't know if we want to sign on to that. Wow. Uh, we, while denouncing Hamas, I still don't want to uh give a blind declaration of support to israel just to make it feel like it's free to bomb the hell out of, of gaza and kill thousands and thousands of people so that was the first sign in my humble opinion sarah that things had changed your thoughts i think that's absolutely true and what i really loved about the way you frame this conversation is the need to center it in people's humanity especially in chicago especially where this is where we saw a six-year-old murdered simply for being Palestinian. And that's horrifying. And I think every leader in this moment, be it the president, whose biggest job is to keep everyone in this country safe, to everyone down who has any kind of responsibility, 
it is really important that we are centering people's humanity. Again, my kids have Jewish and Muslim heritage. They are less safe now than they were before October 7. And that is terrifying. Like, I, like the rise in anti-Semitism has been appalling. And I just want to be clear, like, I remember the Tree of Life shooting. When that happened, I went to my local synagogue and made sure that my community knew that I was here. And it was like it was fantastic seeing so many different faith traditions be together around that. I have seen a lot of people from the Jewish community and other communities really say that Islamophobia is unequivocally terrible. And then to be vulnerable, like I was young when the global war on terror happened. I remember the racism I had to deal with and like the way people would just refer to me as a terrorist because I happen to look the way I do and have the faith I do. I don't want that for my kids. Mm -hmm. And I think it's on all of us to choose not to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think we can make that choice. And I think everyone listening wants to make that choice. And this is, again, we have more power than we think. And we can all do that work to make sure we can keep our community safe. Have your kids uh, been challenged or confronted uh, at the school where they go to? Uh, on, I mean, just they could get in on both ends. It yeah. is kind of scary. Thankfully not. Thankfully, they're very young. So the we haven't had to cross that bridge yet. But it is something I worry about. It is like when I saw the six-year-old who died, he looks like my son. And like, I know there are lots of people listening who have kids. And like, it's horrifying. Yeah. Have you had the conversation? Are they so young? Are they too young to have the quote unquote conversation? They're a little too young for that. I think what I've been doing with them is really reminding them about what I think is missing in this conversation, where so much is like, you're either a part of this community or in that community, and never the two shall meet. Yeah. And like, for me, what I've been telling them is that. They have a superpower in that they have both and they have both because of love and their very existence shows that's not true. And I'll like, again, this is me getting a little bit corny, but one thing that has been really helpful is like me seeing them every day is a reminder of what is possible when people make different choices. Where were you when uh, 9-11 happened? Were you in uh, Chicago suburbs or? I was not. I was in Sydney, Australia. Um, I grew up in Australia. I was born in Iran, grew up in Australia and moved to the U.S. Um, later in life. But yeah, I was in high school and it was rough. It was rough. It The way people assumed that I was for such horrific violence, the 
way people would talk to me the and like I went to college and Ben I've always called myself a Muslim feminist and the amount of people who'd be like I don't that doesn't make sense to me and when I told them like I was born in Iran they'd be like oh it's because of all of the oppression and like let me be clear the Iranian government is horrible and the way it treats women is horrific and I'm glad that after the Masa Amini protest that happened, more people see this. My feminism was born out of watching women around me unequivocally fighting for their rights and having such a clear sense of what they were entitled to and not being willing to compromise that. And that for me has been so important throughout my life in knowing that when we have a privilege to speak up, that we can and should. And even if it doesn't make a difference today, it changes things and you don't know what will happen over the long long term, which mm-hmm. is why we need to keep pushing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just, I decided absolutely nothing. We were having a conversation before we came on the show. I was walking down the street. It was really noisy. Uh, and somehow I asked... Uh, Sarah, where she grew up. And I thought you said Des Plaines, but you said Australia. Australia. <laughs> it was so loud. I mean, give, give me, but <laughs> I thought it was from Des Plaines. Uh, Australia is a far away from Des Plaines. It is. Uh, I, uh, I, I, can, I guess I can hear a little Australia in your accent. Um, it comes out when I say the letter H. H, say it. H. H. H, I guess that's a little, I don't know. I'm not in a spot to judge. Uh, so any closing thoughts you want to give? Any uh, advice? Uh, any you want, if people want to get involved with your group? How do they get involved? The floor is yours. If people want to get involved, the easiest way is to go to our website, www.winwithoutwar.org, and do get involved. Do take one, do one thing, do one thing today or tomorrow, have one conversation, donate to a cause, do one thing that you might not have done before, but do it because you believe in peace and do it because we are the guardians of that. And if people like us don't do it, no one else, nothing is going to get better. That is so true. And uh, I'm going to bring you back. We're going to talk Pentagon budget. That's a whole conversation. Oh, uh, I would love to talk about that with you at some point. Yeah, because that's a refrain, uh, Sarah, that I've been hearing really for as long as I've been covering politics, which is a long, long time. Way, 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 way long. But it's always like people are like, we can't do this in Chicago. There's no money for Chicago, but the Pentagon, you know what I mean? All the money going to the Pentagon. And here in Chicago right now, we're absolutely helpless in the face of uh, the the so-called migrant crisis, which I don't even believe is a crisis, uh, because there's like no money. Who's going to pay for it? Meanwhile, the Pentagon, the Pentagon. So uh, absolutely would like to have that conversation and sort of break it apart a little bit and tell folks where the tax dollars are going. Would you come back for that? Absolutely. I would love to. 
All right, excellent. And uh, Sarah is also a writer. I told her I wasn't going to talk about young adult fiction, but it's a mini obsession of mine. So maybe we'll have a conversation about that as well. Uh, having nothing to do uh, with budgets or war, et cetera, young adult fiction. I'm like 90 years old and I still love it. It's kind of weird. Um, oh, we can nerd out on that anytime <laughs> you want. Okay. <laughs> All right. Very good, Sarah. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and keep up the work. I, you know, like I said, I can't think of, of an issue right now. That's just like more in our face every single day. And, uh, and then it's just, uh, it bleeds into our local politics and our national politics. It will be an issue in the 2024 presidential election. We know that's coming. Uh, and it won't be, it'll be ugly. So uh, keep up the good work and uh, keep pushing on this, all right? Thank you so much for having me, Ben. All right, Sarah, thank you very much. I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. And I think Sarah agrees with me to say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. And remember, you can always catch up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows. Get yourself some free Benny J bonus interviews, some columns written by Ben Jarofsky, all just by spending a little time at a little place we call ChicagoReader.com. If you want to follow Ben on Instagram, it's at Benny J Show. And like and subscribe and actually follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.